Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. I couldn't relate to him, he couldn't relate to me, we couldn't have a conversation so I felt very estranged from the whole process and I, I wasn't a very good daughter, I didn't think, you know. You were the best daughter that you could be <laughs> given the yeah. circumstances. In the last episode, we talked a bit about involving family members or carers in the diagnosis of dementia. And today we're going to meet Helen, whose father had dementia. She'll tell us a little bit about what her experiences and the experience of her family were like, both the more difficult moments and also how they used laughter to help them cope. As always, my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia are here, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Stephanie Daly. Before we hear from Helen, I think we should say that all three of us have had experiences with family members having dementia. Marita, for you, it was your father who had dementia. Can you tell us a little what it was like as a daughter of a father with dementia? Look, it was really hard. I mean, Dad was a good man and a really smart man. He'd contributed a lot to his field of medicine. He was an obstetrician. And... Um, his mum had dementia, so he was always really fearful and he'd say things to us, you know, like, if I ever get that, shoot me. You know, those offhand comments and the other one that you hear a lot, don't you ever put me in one of those nursing homes, will you? You know, so there was a lot of that that background. And then I think being a doctor for myself and for him, it was it was probably hard for both of us from that perspective. I think I just started working with DTA at that stage, which was really helpful for my patients but almost made it harder for dealing with dad. And I was also the interstate daughter, and we all know how that goes in families. It can be really tricky. And I think the hardest thing and the biggest job for me was just to get everyone on board to understand there's something going on here and it's it's more than normal ageing. You know, yep, dad's forgetful and repetitive, but it's more than that. And dad also didn't have a GP. He was of the era where your mates looked after, you know, they all looked after each other. So there wasn't kind of a GP we could even go to for dad. And I remember once the cardiologist rang us and said, look, I'm just letting you know, I'd met dad out at a function not long ago and he was doing so well. But today he couldn't find his way back from the echo room when he had his ultrasound done. And um, that same day his car was towed because he'd parked in a clear way. So, you know, he was fairly advanced by the time we eventually got him to a to a geriatrician. And the only way I could do that, because he was a, such a smart man, every time I'd organise an appointment, he would wangle his way out of it so well. And so we made the decision that I would just turn up at 8 o'clock in the morning and 8.15 we're in the taxi to the geriatrician because it was the only way we sort of had to catch him off guard. And um, the geriatrician did a beautiful job looking after him and caring for him, but it was it was really quite advanced. And that's for a medical family and an actually dementia-aware family. The, the process was really tricky. So, you know, it's no wonder families find this such a difficult process. Thanks for sharing that, Marita. I think we can uh, hear from Helen. I got to know Helen through caring for her parents, both Phil and Pat, his wife, have died now. Uh, and uh, just recently heard their daughter Helen spoke with me about what it was like to care for a father as he progressed through the journey with dementia.
there was a sort of vacancy there. He just didn't have his full personality anymore. He wasn't engaged as he used to be. He was still Phil, but it was a, a vague and ephemeral, uncertain sort of feeling we had. But it got a lot more certain, <laughs> I can tell you. As yeah. time went on. Oh, yeah. Uh, oftentimes people, their short-term memory is affected. Did you notice anything in that regard? Yeah, very much so. The first thing that started happening would be that he would repeat himself all the time or he would ask the same question over and over and over again. It started just, you know, rarely and then more and more regularly. Mum told me about that. Um, so she started doing things like putting notes on the fridge and reminding him of the day. And I think we all sort of had that feeling that it was some sort of dementia. I mean, mum said to me that, you know, dad had always been meticulous account keeper and he had uh, a ledger which he filled in every single transaction, every movement of money in and out of the house went into that ledger. And he would sit at his desk and make those entries, you know, in and out, and then he would add it up at the end of the month. And then mum said one day he just stopped doing it. Mm. How did your mum respond at that time? What was happening mom for Mum was incredibly um, naturally optimistic, as you know, and always very proactive, always on the front foot about her life. So she managed it in the best way she could. I mean, she just always maintained that optimism and positivity about it, you know. She just had to deal with the blows as they came and they got harder and harder to deal with, of course. As time yeah. went on. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the, the process for Phil getting the diagnosis of dementia, how that came about? Yeah, well, um, he was very resistant. We were all 100% certain we knew what was going on. I, I don't remember exactly, but I do remember that Dad was still driving and Mum was very concerned. We were all very concerned about him driving because he was not capable, you know, of driving anymore. He was driving at about 5 k's an hour and then when he got to the, you know, the intersection, he was slamming his foot on the brake, you know. I mean, even though we were only going 5 k's, it was very unsettling. So that was the thing that started Mum on the, on the journey, I guess, of intervening there for a start she took him for an assessment and they asked him to draw a clock and she came home that day and she told us what kind of clock Phil had drawn and it was like some sort of strange long narrow extreme egg shape with all the numbers squished into one tiny corner and a number of other things of course he didn't know who the prime minister was he didn't know what the year was so it sounds like he had uh, some cognitive screening tests done. This is just putting the medical jargon in it. Yeah. That's what those questions would have been. It sounds like it. And yeah. the clock drawing test is one that we do. And it gives a fair indication of people's spatial ability and by extrapolation, their ability to drive. As uh, my friend and colleague Marita always says, the driving days are numbered when you get a diagnosis of dementia. Oh, yeah. And I remember that your mum was particularly protective of Phil's dignity and privacy and really worked very hard to try and keep Phil at home for as long as possible. What are your memories of that time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Dad was a very proud man. I think in many ways, you know, she probably would have liked it if he could have been more open about talking about it. But it's a very difficult subject to talk about when you've been diagnosed with something like that. So he was in a lot of denial. He wouldn't have any conversations about it. He wouldn't use the words that had been applied to him. And she wanted to do everything she possibly could to protect him, for sure. 
she was a force to be reckoned with, wasn't she? Indeed she was. And uh, (laughs) what sort of supports were there for your mum that helped her to care for Phil for such a long time? She had the people coming in and sitting with Phil for three hours while she went to bridge who were some sort of government assistance thing that she applied for. I don't even know what it's called. They're called angels. Angels. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, applied for that and that was part of, a, a package that was provided to her. So that was that was one thing. That was very good. She had her two daughters, of course, and then she had all her friends from the Bridge Club. And there was you. There was me. <laughs> <laughs> there was always that backstop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My father also had dementia yeah. and died from dementia. And as things were getting more difficult, what started happening was that he started having falls. So part of what we talk about with dementia is that there's a memory decline mm-hmm. and then there's the ability to do things like driving or writing the checks like you, you've you noticed. Yeah. And then eventually as the dementia progresses, there's a physical decline yeah. as yes. well. Yes. That started to happen for Phil. I don't know how many times it happened, but I know that it happened one day when I was there and things had been very bad. It had got to the point where mum couldn't leave dad at home because, you know, she used to go out to bridge and leave him at home and he used to be fairly safe. He was okay, but then it got to the point where we had to have carers and us, my sister and I, involved in sitting there. So I happened to be there this day. And what used to happen with dad was he would stand up to walk and he would lean, he would pitch forward. Because he was off balance, then he would move his legs his little legs faster and faster and faster to try and, you know, right that balance. But, of course, that just became faster and faster and faster. And on this day he just headed straight out onto the road and went face first into the road. He hit his head and grazed his whole face, went into hospital and then they found out that he also had a urinary tract infection, which was something he could never have communicated. Mm. And I guess you get that with dementia patients because they can't speak about what's going on with them. And the goal of care at that stage is to try and keep people safe. And I recall when Phil had that fall and was in hospital having a conversation with Pat about safety. And from my memory, that was a thing that kind of got her over the line in acknowledging that it it wasn't going to be safe for Phil or probably for her. No, well, you're right. I mean, the thing about that was is that the hospital was just around the corner from the nursing home, you know. (laughs) And I think once he was out of the house, then mum was probably really clear that he wasn't coming back. Yeah, it wasn't safe. No, it wasn't safe at all. He used to try and do the dishes and just leave the tap on. And then three hours later, mum would come home from bridge and the whole house would be like six inches underwater. That happened a couple of times. Mm. They lost a lot of really nice Persian rugs that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to get rid of them. Probably not the, the way that you choose. Can you imagine whether your mum would have been able to make the decision to do that if it hadn't come to that? Yeah, no, I think things were getting, to be frank, they were getting so bad. Uh, We'd had the conversation several times and Dad was unable to care for himself in every way. So he couldn't toilet himself. She couldn't lift him. She couldn't wash him anymore. So I think she knew it was coming, but she just couldn't quite decide which day was the right day, you know? (laughs) 
was such a delight to have an opportunity to speak with Helen in this way and, and to hear her story and to probably gain a deeper insight about what was going on for her and the family than perhaps what I even had at the time of caring for Phil and Pat. Um, but I'm interested, both Marita and Steph, in what were your thoughts about what we heard from Helen during that conversation? Maybe, Steph, you might start off. I think it was um, really, I suppose she's got the the value of insight now to look back and reflect on what had happened, but she gave a really good description of the sorts of things that you might notice as a carer. She said that, you know, he was having a lot of repetitive questioning and repetitive conversation. And she noticed that um, her mom had started to use post-it notes as reminders around and that at one point he'd been very meticulous in using an, a ledger where he kept details of all the ins and outs financial and then suddenly he stopped doing that and lost interest in that and that's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about when we're talking about loss of function that's an an example of somebody losing their function and a change in behavior that can really give you a clue that something you know more than just aging is going on yeah and I really liked the way she talked about the change in Phil's personality so she said he was still Phil, but there was something different. There was a vacancy. Something had changed. And, of course, that's a very subtle um, sign that lots of people reflect back on and, and can see that. And I thought it was really lovely that when she named up, um, you know, who was significant in the caring role, and, of course, it was his wife and his daughters and the bridge club, and then there was you. And I think that speaks volumes to what a GP can provide in um, for their patients and carers when we're looking at a, um, a diagnosis of dementia that has, you know, a trajectory over years. Yeah, it is a privilege to be involved in the care of people in that way. Uh, it does have some emotional impact. I'm wondering, Marita, for you, if um, what your experiences have been with the emotional impact of doing this sort of work? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Sort of brings it back sometimes. Yeah. So while it's good because you've had that insight and that lived experience, it is hard. Mm. Another thing I really liked, again, was the importance of that clock face. Coming back to it, you know, yeah. the clock face, it's just just a gift, isn't it? For getting so much information. And I think... As hard as it is to be the person watching your relative do that clock face, if you weren't aware of what was going on, that's a really a real way to demonstrate that there is something more serious going on with the brain. And it, and I, I find it, although it's difficult to do some of the cognitive screening with a relative in the room, sometimes when the relative isn't quite on board with what's going on, it can really help to get them on side and show them what really is happening. Yeah. Um, because some people will want to protect and 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 perhaps they don't want the diagnosis but when you see something like that it's really indisputable that mm. you know because everybody knows how to draw a clock face normally yeah so yeah and lots of people say oh i i wouldn't know how to spell world backwards yeah or, or i couldn't count backwards. yeah people explain things away yeah or, i can never remember those three things or and and they they go along with the patient yeah but that kind of written yeah. That drawing is um, yeah. speaks volumes, I think. I was kind of struck by the way Helen described Phil's journey with dementia, that it pretty clearly elucidated what we call the three stages. One of the things that struck me was that, um, I guess, again, they were very keen to kind of protect Phil 
And the thing that led them to intervene with him was concerns about safety, which is something that we often see in in stage two. And, And with that family, it was about driving concerns. And they were obviously worried about whether there might be an accident or whether, you know, he was going to come to harm or harm someone else. And they all said, I think she said something like, we all knew he wasn't really capable of driving anymore. Um, So that really demonstrates one of the reasons why family will seek support at that point. Um, So that was quite interesting. And then she talked a bit about the next step was, you know, mum still wanted to go to bridge. So they had the angels who came in and and offered some respite, um, which again is, is trying to maintain people in their home as long as possible, which is one of the, you know, main goals of of our you know management strategy i think yeah and then we started to see those behavior changes with the you know the wandering and the physical decline with the falling so it was you know quite a um good descriptor of that trajectory where you're really looking at the independence in that first stage and keeping them at home and then as you said steph safety becomes um, a real issue and then the you know urinary tract infection that saw a deterioration as well, mm. and um, so sort of yeah beautiful descriptor of what we see and recognizing that even those formal supports that they had to keep him at home weren't then enough yeah I think and the recognition that you've got to think about the next stage which is often the most challenging for everybody you know to think about moving someone into a residential facility but that was you know when you can have some understanding that that even when you've got all of these people helping you you can't maintain that home support yeah so why don't we have a listen and hear what happens next So Phil went to hospital. He had his urinary tract infection treated. And he had terrible graze on his face. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and had that looked after. And, yeah. and and a fuller assessment was made and it was pretty clear that oh, it wasn't yeah. going to be safe for him to go home. So we organised, I think, respite care initially. Yes. And then he stayed full-time in a residential aged care facility. He did. What do yeah. you remember about that time for yourself, your sister and your mum? Mum, mum was devoted. So she was in there all the time feeding him and, and he, he declined quite quickly, I think, after he got into the nursing home. Although I think he was already declining very quickly. It's just once they're in a nursing home environment, it sort of becomes a bit more obvious or something. I don't know. Lisa was pretty good. Lisa lived with mum, so she would go in more regularly. I found it hard, Hilton. I found it really difficult being around dad because he was so cantankerous he wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't sit at the table. He wouldn't do this and he wouldn't do that. And he'd always say things to me like, can you drive? And I'd say, yes. And he'd say, well, let's get out of here, you know, stuff like that, you know. He'd always say to mum, go get Pat. She'll know what to do mm. to Pat, you know. Mm. It was tragic. It was awful. And I was just angry with him all the time because I guess it's the way I deal with life. I just got angry with him. I just wished he was back. I wished... The person that I knew was back and um, I couldn't relate to him. He couldn't relate to me. We couldn't have a conversation. So I felt very estranged from the whole process and I, I wasn't a very good daughter, I didn't think, you know. 
you were the best daughter that you could be given the <laughs> yeah. circumstances because yeah. it, it is yeah. so difficult. And then yeah. things progressed and, and Phil became, a, from my memory, a little bit less cantankerous as his physical disabilities increased. And, and yeah. I remember going to visit him in the nursing home and he was pretty much bed bound. He and, was. Yeah. yeah, I think he was in bed for six months before he died and he lost the ability to speak. So there's really not much of the dad you remember at that not time. Not at all. Did you have that with your dad too? Uh, he, my dad had a pretty weird dementia. Right. And he could just about remember yeah, who we yeah. were. And so there was that yeah. spark of recognition. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, which no. was sort of a blessing and not a blessing mm. in a way. He knew who we were and kind of where he was. So oh, okay. there was, there's yeah. something about how it was for mm. Phil at the end. I mean, it's very difficult when you don't recognise the person as they were, but they don't recognise where they are either. So mm. that anger and cantankerousness mm. tends to uh, subside. Yeah, definitely. Well, his cognitive abilities just disappeared altogether, really. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really a good thing when he died. So I was going to ask you about that. Yes. It was a good thing when he died. Can you talk a little more about that? Well, it sort of seems like a, a terrible thing to say, but I was relieved really relieved. Don't know if mum was. I was happy for mum. It was a burden. She was chained to that whole routine of going and feeding him. And she was chained to a large financial contribution too, you know. Not that she ever complained, but I was glad. She wasn't rich. Pat didn't have a lot of money. The nursing home, rightly, and fair enough, was taking a big chunk of her money, you know. So I was pleased for her to have some cash to herself to be able to buy herself something nice and not have to, you know. And Dad had nothing to give and nothing to gain from life. So so we had that advanced health directive. Yes. We had that in place, thank goodness, that we could say no no antibiotics mm. when he got pneumonia, mm. Mm. which I think was the right thing to do. Yeah, and that would have been, knowing Phil as I did, that would have been yeah. what his wish would have been. Definitely. Mm such a big thing when your parents pass so while we're in a reflective mood for yeah. a moment, just before we finish up if you were to reflect on your response to phil's journey with dementia what sort of lasting impact has that had on you personally helen oh i just think you know it makes you philosophical about life for me anyway i feel quite you know you never know what's going to happen to you i mean it's all very cliched um <laughs> Well, there's but, Phil's spirit just came yeah. into the room and blew the notes <laughs> away. And Pat's probably there as well. I do think humour is important. Yeah, so you had a few laughs together, a lot oh, of laughs. Oh, lots of laughs, lots of laughs. And, and also, I'm sure, it brought, you know, the three women in the family together, mm -hmm. which was good, you know, having to plan and having to make decisions about someone else's life is a big responsibility. But it's a big honour too, you know, like you say, honouring Phil, what would he wish? Certainly he would have probably liked to go a lot earlier, really. And, I, you know, I did think at the time, would I be able to turn off a switch or, you know, take any action in that direction? And I don't think I would have been able to. So it worked out the best way it could have in the end, I think. done enough talking in this interview. <laughs> so I was really interested with a lot of the language that was used in that. So, you know, mum was devoted, you know, and but it was a burden. And 
Helen used the words tragic and awful and angry. You know, she found it really difficult to relate to her dad and just found him difficult, felt that there was nothing there of their relationship that was left. And she described herself as being a pretty bad daughter that she felt, which is, you know, a really uncomfortable feeling, I, I imagine. And it was really nice the way Hilton, you could say to her, well, you were the best daughter you could be at that time you know, to try and make sense of it for her as well because it is really hard watching your parent decline, deteriorate in every sense of who they are, let alone then seeing, I guess, the physical decline and and when she talked about the fact that she really felt he had, I think she said, nothing to give and nothing to gain from life. Um. So it was, it was, that was quite hard to actually listen to as well because it was so emotional but so well articulated. So I just incredibly appreciative that Helen could share all that uh, with you and then with us on the podcast. I think you don't often get to hear that emotion from carers because they don't feel able to, you know, nobody wants to say I was just really angry and almost like I felt uncomfortable being in his presence. But That is how some people feel. And I think as practitioners, it's our job to help people to express that and be allowed to express that because it's not an easy journey for people to witness this sort of thing happening to their family member. And if people aren't able to express that, that could do them harm later on, you know, after the person has died. Lots of feelings of guilt persist. Mm. So I think it was really great that she was able to talk so frankly about it and just reminds us that that that's part of our role as well Mm. being the advocate for the carer as well as for the patient and interestingly there is evidence that cbt is really useful for managing with carer stress and so i think as again as gps checking in on the carer or suggesting the carer you know, go to see their own GP and look at options of mental health care plans and, and CBT for dealing with that mm. so that, as you say, there's not a long-lasting um, feelings of guilt or regret. Mm. Um, so useful to keep that in mind. And it sometimes needs to be quite intentional that the carer will sometimes come with the person with dementia and that appointment is for the person with dementia but the carer has needs as well. And so there needs to be proper prior planning around the care needs for the carer. And I used to do that with Pat. And in my mind, the model I would have is that for the amount of time I would spend with Phil, I need to spend probably an equal amount of time with Pat just for her. Mm. And it it was nice that I already had that relationship with both of them. Uh, It doesn't always happen that the doctor of the person with dementia is also the GP for the carer. And as you say, Marita, then they need to be suggesting or recommending that the carer gets the support that they need as well. Mm -hmm. And it was probably that support that uh, that Helen spoke about that Pat had that enabled Phil to stay at home for as long as he did. Because without that whole village support it would have been impossible it was kind of interesting to the um the sense of i guess some hilarity in all of that like when she talked about losing several persian rugs when phil would leave the tap on and flood the house and you know she said that they did manage throughout the time to to have a lot of laughs as well and i think that's probably important and certainly 
reflecting back on some of the changes with my dad, he would often, he'd talk for a long time, but he would make no sense and he would make up words. And it was hard not to have a little giggle, even though you felt a little bit disrespectful, you know, after we'd go, oh, you know, did, did you hear what dad was talking about? And we'd have a bit of a good giggle about it. So I think the thing with humour and particularly as GPs with patients, to laugh at the situation while remaining absolutely respectful of the person yeah, uh, and not making fun of the person, but being able to see the humorous side. One of the other things that I was thinking about in that interview was also when he transitioned into residential aged care facility, she said that her mum was very devoted and would go every day. And actually, I wonder if that's even more of a burden for the carer to feel like every day you want to be there and and support them in that environment when actually things might be deteriorating and then you really don't do anything for yourself anymore because you feel like you have to be there every day. And some part of also what we should talk about is making sure that the the carer knows to look after their own self-care needs as well and that they'll be okay if you miss a day. It's okay to miss a day and go and do something for yourself, like get your hair cut or go to the doctors. Because I think that sense of responsibility that you need to be with that person all the time can be quite overwhelming. Um, And also, you know, because this is a palliative disease in the end, that person's going to be on their own. So they need to have that, you know, social connection with their friends and you know how they're going to cope afterwards so they 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 need to be allowed to do that as well i think Mm. so i think we call that playing the long game Mm. the other thing that i was struck listening to the interview again was uh, how helen described the benefit of having an advanced care plan yeah yeah and so that that difficult decision about uh, withholding antibiotics Mm. was um, made so much easier by Phil's clear intention while he had capacity that if he were ever in that situation, he would not want to have antibiotics. And also they felt very much that as a, I think she expressed that as a family, she felt she was doing something for him when hadn't she hadn't been able to do anything. They'd come together as a family and made these decisions and, and decided what would be best for him. And so that gave her a sense of empowerment, I think, in a situation where you just don't feel you have any control. So what was best for him and also what he would have wanted. Mm. So that thing about supporting his wishes. Mm. So the the line that I so often use, in order to honour a person's wishes, I need to know what those wishes are. And uh, Phil's family knew that through the advanced care planning process, uh, which relieves them of a burden it's one less burden phil said this is what he wanted and so this is what he wanted this is what we're going to do rather than them having to make the decision themselves and that's so much the advantage of doing advanced care planning early with everyone really well thanks steph and marita for that very open conversation about what clearly is a very difficult topic for the three of us and no doubt for people listening to this episode I guess we should reinforce that if any listeners feel that some emotions were triggered from this episode to talk to their GP about what's happening and also a reminder about Dementia Australia having so many resources available for people caring with dementia. But next time we'll talk about dementia prevention because 
As we know, although there is no cure for dementia, there's so much that can be done to help reduce the risk of developing a dementia and if it should occur, to slow down its progress. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to be heading back to the Wicking Dementia Education and Research Centre to chat to Centre Director Professor James Vickers about some of the modifiable risk factors and to get a few other suggestions than just do a Sudoku or a crossword uh, for patients who want to keep an active mind. Yeah, I hear doing crosswords is good if you want to be good at doing crosswords. So it'll be (laughs) really interesting to hear what other strategies might be helpful. So you'll be able to hear that. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks again, Stefan, Marita, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.